Okay, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. I'll be reading Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Luke 4, 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God And him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Our holy, glorious Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, cause us to hallow your name. Let the power and the rule and the authority of your kingdom come in our lives. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know that you will constantly give us our daily bread. And we ask that you continually forgive us our trespasses as you have forgiven all of our trespasses in the past, and as we continue to forgive those who trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but because of Christ, constantly deliver us from Satan, the evil one. Amen. To have become a Christian, it means to have come in to the reality in a way you never could have before of your own sinfulness before God. Paul, Romans chapter 7, is the life of a believer because the Spirit of Christ now is in you. You have tasted and are tasting what it is to know Him and to enjoy Him and you're still wrought with your sin nature. And so you find yourself not doing that which you know you should do and doing that which you know you shouldn't. And there's this 
battle going on. Add to that the external battle of Satan and demons in temptation. That's the Christian life. Last time in Luke, we saw that Jesus won our battle. Totally. His perfect, sinless life is the life of all who have come to saving faith in Him. And it is the only life now and for all eternity by which God, the righteous judge, would judge you. He is our propitiation. He put away our guilt on the cross. Okay, Jesus is that. And we will see this morning, He is also the perfect man and thus the model how to live and battle sin or the temptation to sin. So, we read beginning with verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan right after His baptism and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. What I want to do is I want to consider five things first before we go on and look at the temptations. First is this. Satan is real. We have this story. How? Nobody was there. Except for Satan, God, Jesus. Jesus must have related this experience that He had with His disciples. So Jesus believes Satan is real. And elsewhere the Bible constantly teaches us that Satan is real. He is a real, personal, evil spirit called Satan or the devil. Satan means adversary. Devil means accuser. And besides Satan, there are who knows how many untold other evil entities called demons. And Satan and demons are angelic beings who have rebelled against God and they have even now presently influence over human beings in the earth. Satan is powerful. He's intelligent. He is not omnipotent, all-powerful. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent. And he does nothing without God's ultimate will. And his final doom is assured. But presently, he's here and he has sway in this earth. And He is the great adversary, especially of every born-again person. Especially of the church. Listen to how Paul, writing to the Corinthians, speaks. So that we would not be outwitted 
by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. And he has designs. He has schemes. So that's the first thing. Just note the obvious. Satan and demons exist. Secondly, as we will delve into Jesus' experience here in the wilderness, be careful to not have in the back of your mind going, okay, great, but this is Jesus. He's God, so I don't know really how big of a deal these temptations are. Now, we have spent some significant amount of time in Luke on different angles talking about the incarnation of Christ. We're not talking about two persons, a human Jesus and a divine Jesus. There is only one person, the eternal second person of the Trinity, who took to Himself true humanity. And so, as we have seen, we mean one person with two distinct Natures that are unmixed, divine and human. So get this though. What that does mean is that He is really, genuinely, fully a human being. Don't make the mistake is we watch Jesus here being tempted by the devil or in all of his life and all of his obedience. Oh, what we have here is God in a box. God, divine nature inside, unlike us, human nature, as if he only has a human body but doesn't have a human soul or a human mind. No, he does. He is completely human like Adam. Like us, with a soul, a human mind, and a human body. Don't fall into the old heresy of docetism. The word docetic coming from the Greek word to seem. It's the old heresy that says he appeared as if, and he did walk, and we saw his human body, but he could like just you know float around and disappear, and he's really not human, only seemed to be. Human. No. When the second person of the Holy Trinity took to Himself human nature, what He did is He placed the exercise of His divine omniscience in knowledge and omnipotence and power totally to the discretion of God the Father. And lived as a dependent human. This is what Paul is getting at when he says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count his equality with God, a thing to, to, be, to be grasped or not let go of. No, 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 no. He did not refuse to become human. He's saying he became truly human. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the brutal death of a cross. That's that one person in true 
human nature. The Hebrew writer makes it crystal clear. Jesus had to be made like His brothers in every respect. Jesus' human mind, as we have seen in weeks past, developed. He wasn't goo-gooing in the crib in the manger, understanding and having thoughts about, look at that, I understand the earth is revolving around the sun. It's not where His human mind was yet. We saw Him grow. We saw Him as a 12-year-old in the temple. We saw what perfect, sinless, flawless, unaffected by the effects of sin, human mind and intellect and nature looks like at age 12. He absolutely floored the PhDs of His day. Not only in His mind, but in His devotion. And He continued to develop and to grow. And now at about age 34, we see. And He has come, and who knows at what point, but the point is in the Scripture, Jesus in His human nature progressively acquired the recognition of who He is. The eternal Son of God. And He acquired that only at the Father's will. In that progression. And we saw right before this, God spoke supernaturally, right before his ministry. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The point is, in his human nature, he didn't move. Without the will of His Father. This is what He's getting at when He expresses it this way in John chapter 5. The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Or, I do nothing, He said, on my own authority. But I speak just as the Father taught me. That's what that human being said. And so, as Jesus here in our text goes off into the wilderness after His baptism, He's probably 33, 34 years old, He knows He's the Son of God and Satan knows it too. And we will see that out there in that wilderness, He withstood the gunfire of every temptation. Not just at the end of 40 days. The Greek really is He was being tempted that whole time. And then here's the culmination that is delivered to us. But that He conquered by His derived power of the Holy Spirit filling Him and trusting in the will of His Father 
written in a book or an iPhone that you have. That leads to the third thing to consider, which I'm only going to consider briefly. And that's this. Could Jesus have sinned? In other words, is it true that if you say he couldn't, <laughs> is it true that what we're going to read, that that temptation of Jesus was actually genuine if he could not have succumbed to the temptation? Did Jesus have in his human nature the ability to sin? Now, before you just answer yes or no, you really have to clarify the question, which becomes really important. Our answers don't mean much. In the youth group, we found that out the other night, huh? <laughs> See, when someone asks a question, and then you ask them, okay, define that term you just used. It's a key term. And you said, I have no idea what it means. Well, then what difference does it make what I answer? Okay. All right. So... Let's just work slowly through the question. If you say, yes, the temptation is real, and that therefore it means Jesus could have sinned, okay, okay. But when you say that, you ha make sure you mean this, because you're not in heresy here. But you must mean, yes, he could have sinned, but what's different is this he was not born with sin. He doesn't have what we call original sin. He's not born with the sin nature that the rest of us all have been born with from Adam. Okay, so if you mean yes, you mean he is sinless, he doesn't have sin nature, he's not fallen, and now he's tempted but could sin. Okay. Okay. If you say no, he could not have sinned, then the question is, were the temptations really fake? A charade? Because if he couldn't sin, why is it really a temptation? Now the New Testament teaches in Hebrews clearly that Jesus is just like Every one of us, except for sin, doesn't have it. Sin nature. He has a full human nature. As we saw last time, He is the second Adam. He was born without a sin nature just like Adam before Adam sinned. Adam did not have a sin nature when he was born. So let's ask the question of Adam for a minute. Could Adam, in the way God created him, and he, he is not fallen, he is not a sinner yet, 
in that human nature, without sin, could Adam sin? Did Adam have the ability to sin? Obviously. Because he sinned. The second Adam also was capable of sinning. He had all the human faculties that are necessary in order to sin. If he wanted to. Are you with me so far? So could Jesus have sinned if he wanted to sin? Of course he could. Obviously he could. Let's ask the question a different way. Could Jesus have sinned if he did not want to? No, he could not. Wanting to sin is a prerequisite for sinning. That's why it's impossible for the divine nature to sin. Follow me here. Don't don't confuse Jesus' incarnation yet. God cannot sin. He has never, ever struggled with temptation to sin. The divine nature has absolutely no want to that could ever in any way be tempted. Okay, but what here we're referring to the divine second person, not in his divine nature but in His human nature. See, now this is where the question, this is the real question that we started from as we worked our way down. The real question that is being asked, and it's the thorny issue, I think, is this. Could Jesus, in His human nature, could He have wanted to sin? Orthodox, when I small o, orthodox Christians disagree on this. Some say yes, some say no. I do not know. I, I just I don't I do not know. I I might lean a little bit towards no, but I'm gonna you know me, I'm gonna define that with four paragraphs, but I'm going to do that. So that's as far as I can go with that. But here's a few of my musings. Just follow that. This right here. God is absolutely the freest being of all. Totally free. And He cannot and has never in His divine nature experienced temptation to sin. Okay? Hold that right there. We human beings who have come to Christ will one day be resurrected. Satan and demons will be done and put away. Sin will be obliterated in our lives and we will no longer be able to sin and we will be radically free. And that's got to mean we're not going to be waking up with temptation. That we just keep defeating. It just won't be there. Can you picture it? Okay. When we read our text, this I do know. Jesus was tempted. 
and it was a battle. Okay, so do with that what you will. But stay within orthodoxy. <laughs> but hear the words of the Hebrew writer here. Because this is really for our souls. Hear it. For because Jesus himself suffered when tempted. Because of that, He is able to help those who are being tempted. What mercy. I know you lost track of numbers, but the fourth thing to consider is the context in which Luke places it. Jesus is baptized. We saw very differently that from Matthew, the next thing is the wilderness temptation. But Luke inserts the genealogy right between them and he works backwards, which is really strange, through Abraham up to Adam, who is the Son of God. And then three verses later, we meet Satan saying to Jesus, If you are the Son of God. Now let me, let me just do something real quickly. That if there, in the original, it's, not gonna, it, it's a first class conditional. It, what Satan is doing here is not trying to get Jesus to doubt His Sonship. It's not the point. It's really, since it's true you are the Son of God, you know it, Jesus, and I know it. He is using Jesus' understanding of who He is now as this 34-year-old. He's using that truth as the bedrock to tempt Him to sin with it. That's where He's going. If. But with the context, Luke obviously wants us to see the contrast between Adam in the garden who plunged Joe LeMay into everlasting condemnation. And I wasn't even born. And with Jesus, the second Adam, who comes and reverses it for Joe LeMay. This is what he wants us. And then fifthly, notice, Luke's clear. He's filled with the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit led him off into a very desolate, barren wasteland, alone to fast. To put down his bodily human appetites and to commune with God. And to be tempted by Satan. And we will see now that in the midst of these temptations, this glorious man, the God-man, has been clearly meditating on Deuteronomy, on Exodus, on the wilderness wanderings of Israel and their rebellion and their hard-heartedness when God was putting them to the test. And He is filled with Scripture. Because all three of His responses to Satan's temptation, He quotes Deuteronomy 
it has to do with God testing Israel. Do you trust me? Or are you going to rebel against me? And so, the first man, Adam, in a garden filled with luscious food and fruits, was tempted and fell. The second man, in a desolate place where there is no food, and he's starving, was tempted and won the victory. So now, let's go look at these temptations. Starting with verse, in the middle of verse 2. And forty days go by, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, Since you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Let's feel it. He's a real human being. Six weeks without any food. This is the time that the human body starts to go into crisis mode. He is feeling like he's dying. He is extremely weak. And there's no fruit trees around. There's nothing around to eat. But he is the Son of God. And thus... He does have the ability to use a supernatural power if He's so used and to change that rock into bread. That's why it was a temptation. None of us, I'm pretty sure about this, none of us have ever been tempted to change a rock into bread because it's impossible for us. But Jesus could have done it in a nanosecond. And his hunger was screaming at him, do it! You think your hunger screams at you when you fast breakfast and lunch and you're driving by in and out burger? Forty days. With a real human nature and a real human body. Now, but why is this a temptation to sin? Because it seems innocent enough. Food is not sin. God has created all things for our enjoyment. To be received with thanksgiving. So what in the heck is going on here that makes this a temptation? I don't know any better answer other than to say simply this, and this is where we started. Jesus as the incarnate God, the true human Savior, our representative in true human nature, came with true humanity to live obediently and perfectly 
according to His Father's will. And thus, to not move and act apart from His Father's will. He had perfectly followed His Father since birth. 34 years old. He's just followed Him 40 days ago by the Spirit into the desert. And now comes this thought in the head. Do this. It would have been sin according to Jesus because the Father had not seen fit to provide Him with food then in His human nature. Not following that yet. You're hungry, Jesus. Satan whispers, You, you're God. You do it. Provide for your own physical, material needs apart from the will of your Father. Go outside the natural order just for a few minutes. Just for a few minutes, Jesus. Outside the natural human order and use your Godness to change that rock into bread. In essence, Satan's saying suspend living as a dependent human being. See, this is why Jesus' answer comes from Deuteronomy. He is meditating on Exodus 16. He's meditating on Deuteronomy 8. That's where Israel was murmuring and grumbling. God just delivered them from hundreds of years in slavery. And all of a sudden their bellies are hungry again and they're not getting onions and leeks and garlic and this nice stew pots that they had in slavery. And they bickered. That's the context. He knows this. I want you to just listen to a little bit because Jesus has this whole thing memorized. From Deuteronomy chapter 8. Hear what the Word of the Lord says. And you, remember, this is at the end of the 40 years, Deuteronomy, looking back, recounting all what's going on in Israel's rebellion and sin. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you. And God let you hunger. Just feel it. This is what Jesus sees. Israel, God let you hunger so that in His time He would feed you with quail 
and manna supernaturally. That's the context. And He humbled you. And He let you hunger. And He fed you with manna, which you did not know. Nor did your fathers know that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So to Jesus, the lesson was obvious. God, my Father, could provide from heaven manna right now, Satan. He could do it supernaturally. But He didn't. And therefore I won't sin like Israel in the desert. By bypassing my Father's providential will. And so Jesus answers the devil with a quotation from Deuteronomy 8.3. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, no matter how hungry I am. He's saying, I'm not going to murmur. I'm not going to bicker. I'm not going to take this situation into my own hands, implying, Father, You don't have it in control and You don't care. Jesus is demonstrating here that no need in His human life will ever cause Him to back away from His humble human existence as a real man who trusts God's written Word. He is our perfect, obedient substitute. Satan then comes with the second temptation beginning in verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I will. If you then, Jesus, will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written in the Bible. You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. So in, somehow Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. This, this has to be a vision there's no mountain in the world high enough you can see all the king. It, it, there's got to be some kind of vision that he, that he showed him. And he's saying, Jesus, it's like all yours without weeping over Jerusalem. Without the crucifixion. Israel right here. The entire Roman Empire. India. China. 
yours. Take it. Isn't that why you came? Isn't your goal to be king? To rule, son of David? Then here, meets your end. There's your goal. It's all yours. This is the satanic temptation of the end justifies the means. Isn't your goal to grow the church? Good goal. Who cares how you get there? Coca-Cola knows how to grow Coca-Cola. Learn from them. They're in touch. They know how to appeal to the culture. Meet the goal. You want people to like Jesus, don't you? You want them to come and, and ask Jesus to come into their heart, right? There's the goal. Okay then, let's not get all messed up with the means here. There's some bad means to get into that goal, like being clear about sin. Get rid of the wrath of God talk. That's not going to get you to your goal very easily. Hmm. Satan says, your goal and my goal are the same. Just I'm giving you an easier way to get there. Now when Satan says, I can give it to you because it's been delivered to me to give to whomever I will, I don't think he's lying there. I, because, he, he certainly is not sovereign. But he does have some type of authority in what he's saying here. And it's very limited authority. But even Jesus Himself in the Gospels three times called Satan the prince. It's a rulership position. Of the world. Paul called Him the prince of the power of the air. Of the Spirit that now is operating in the sons of disobedience. And Paul called Him the God of this age. And Satan. Jesus, it's easy. All you got to do is worship me. What devastating effects that would have had on the universe. On God, the Holy Trinity. There would be no salvation for anybody. Here's Jesus. He's out there. He's got these thoughts in his head. And up from the hard work of memorization and mulling over in good theologizing of Scripture comes Deuteronomy 6.13. No. You 
shall not worship any other God. But worship the Lord your God. And it is Him only you should serve. That was His strength. As a human being, by the power of God. See, in that temptation, don't think it was just, okay, no, no, no. He knows why He's here. And that His mission is to rule the universe. He is bringing the kingdom, but He knows the way the Father ordained for Him to take it. And it is through suffering slowly, dying horribly, and experiencing God's holy wrath against sin on behalf of others. That was daunting to Jesus. And that brief external carrot of Satan was felt. It was really felt. But the second Adam, as the perfect, obedient human being, brought up Scripture and embraced the cross and would later say take up your own cross and follow me in the final temptation we read beginning with verse 9 and he took him to Jerusalem and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and he said to him if you are the son of God Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So here, Satan leads him to the roof of the temple, which we're, most scholars think we're, he led him, whether in vision or in reality, we don't know, but he led him to the royal porch, which the temple and that part of it was right there, sitting on the edge of the cliff over the Kidron Valley. And you leap from there, you don't just hit the ground where the building starts, you go over the cliff about 450 feet. And the devil says, okay, Jesus is a Bible guy. I'll give him Bible. Look at this promise right here, Jesus. You're the Son of God. You know it. I know it. Let them know it. Prove it. Psalm 91 says, you will leap from here and you won't get hurt. Wow them. That's what you came for, right? Don't you believe, Jesus? Step out in faith. You got Bible on it. But Jesus knew 
he did not have any direction from the Father to do a swan dive. That's why it's sin. Now, what, what do I mean? He won't get direction later. Hey, Jesus. The disciples are out there thinking they're going to die in a boat. Start walking on the beach here and just keep walking on the water. See, he could do stuff like that at the Father's direction. This is not the Father's direction. He realized that he must never do anything ever except the will of his Father's direction. And to do anything else would be putting God to the test. And so this time he responds with Deuteronomy 6, 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Says that there. Don't misuse Scripture. In other words, willful swan dives while quoting Bible verses. Like, well, He'll turn it out for my good here, so just leap. Is putting God to the test. Diving off the cliff into a marriage that is clearly against God's revealed will in Scripture. But we love each other. We're perfect soulmates. But he's not a Christian. Or she's not a Christian. I know, but God will work it out for our good. I got Romans 8.28. No, you don't. That's not faith in Romans 8.28. That's sin. And putting God to the test. Satan culminates those 40 days. Jesus is starving. Feed your belly, O oh Son of God. Rule! I'll give it all to you right now. Prove God's special care for you. 450 feet and you will be unscathed. That's what he says. And that's what Satan usually says. And that's pretty much all he says. He doesn't tell you the other side of the story. He doesn't tell you the effects that there will be no salvation, Jesus. That you will sin. He doesn't tell you all the effects of all the temptations that he confronts us with all the time. Give in. Enjoy the pleasures of unbiblical sex. And he theologizes for you. Quotes scripture to you. God is love. You and your boyfriend or you and your girlfriend love each other. And therefore, God ultimately really understands it's about love. 
or drunkenness, drug addiction. He's dead on. It feels good. It really does, teenagers. But He doesn't tell you the effects down the road and the destruction in your life and in your family and in your marriage. He just gives you one side. Now, before I close, I always feel this one big burden. Not preach in such a way that we miss the gospel. So, I want to start it this way as I close. It is true. We have here a wonderful model. We ought to ask in our daily battle against sin and demons and Satan's temptation, what would Jesus do? And He gives us the perfect model. We are essentially told here, live on every word that comes from the mouth of Scripture. Worship the Lord your God only. And don't mishandle Scripture and put God to the test. Jesus conquered temptation because He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was being led by the Spirit. The second person of the Trinity in His humanity. He in His humanity, needed the filling of the Spirit. And the Apostle Paul says to every one of us sinful creatures who are being saved in Christ, walk by the Spirit and you will not, at that moment, be gratifying the desires of the flesh. This experience of Jesus that He had, and not only had, but by God's sovereign purposes was recorded in Scripture for us. None of that is an accident. The perfect human being was radically Bible-saturated to live a life of temptation. He was constantly moving, according to Luke's Gospel, away from people to desert places to pray and to be filled with the Spirit. Jesus knew the truth of Psalm 119.11. I have stored up Your Word in my heart so that I might not sin against You. This is where I want to make sure we're clear here. Don't forget last sermon about Christ's righteousness. What that aspect of justification by faith, He is our righteousness. See, why I get Him, sometimes you know, I, what would Jesus do always bothers me when that's all it says. Because that can mean so many things. 
And this is not a moralizing sermon here. Do better, Christian. Okay, now you got it. Do what Jesus did. There's no gospel there yet. No. Understand the gospel. And now do what He did. And this is how I want to say it. By quoting Russell Moore on this. Listen up. One of the first ways you can tell that you are moving beyond temptation into a pattern of sin is if you find yourself in a time of prayerlessness. Hear it. That is not just a spiritual issue. That is a gospel issue. You are recreated through the gospel with a new nature that longs for communion with God. The Spirit within you cries out, Abba, Father, Prayer is exactly how you experience the sympathy of your high priest who has triumphed over your temptation. That's the Gospel. If, and every one of us ought to be able to relate to this, if you are reluctant to pray, you have all been, we have all been, If and when we find ourselves reluctant to hang out with God, it just might be that you, like Adam and Israel before you, are hiding in the vegetation, ashamed to hear the rustling of the leaves that signals He, God is here. I don't want to get too close. To the extent that we do that, that's a gospel. Not understanding the gospel issue. Gospel freedom is the most important aspect of resisting temptation. Remember that Satan's power over you is first and foremost the power of accusation. And threatened death and condemnation. But if you know the gospel, in Christ, though, you have already been indicted. You have already been judged. You have already been executed and resurrected. You are dead to sin. And you're alive to God in Christ Jesus. You have been buried beneath the judgment of God, turned over to the devil, and you are gone. Now you stand in Christ, hidden in His identity, and thus free from any accusation. Knowing that truth does not lead you to yield to temptation, but instead it causes you from it and you're not hiding from God anymore this is the wonderful 
good news of Jesus, our second Adam. Note that first and foremost, in our lives, in our temptations to sin, and in our sinning, in our wanting to repent, or should I, is this temptation that constantly comes to the ear. Hide yourself from God in the garden. And the Gospel screams, You don't need to! If you're in Christ, your guilt is no guilt to you anymore. It's been bought. Christ has been killed with your sin. And God approaches you knowing every thought and actually is aware of your sin that is happening in your life. And He says, I see you as I see My Son, Jesus. And it's on that ground. Pray. Flee to Him. And now in that freedom, fight for the glory of Christ in our lives. Let's pray. Father, may You in special ways in light of this text, this week, by Your Spirit, lead us into those alone places. Away from friends, spouses, children, with You, openly burying our souls in that safe ground of being in Christ and teaching us to first and foremost resist the lie of Satan, the accuser, and feel utterly free to constantly throw his accusations onto the Son, our great Savior, and look him in the eye and say, Satan, wrong. Christ bore my sin. And He is my righteousness. Now flee. To the glory of Your name, Father, work these things deeply in us. Amen. Please stand.